0: Hear, then, the word of God. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. To the woman he said, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. With pain you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. To Adam he said, Because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them, and the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword, flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. So reads the Word of God. I suppose that in the Western world today, there are a few chapters that are more embarrassing. Now, those of us who have been Christians for a long time and steeped in Christian heritage, we absorb all of this and we don't even bother to think about it. But try reading this to a first year cultural anthropology class in the local university. It is the most ridiculous mythology. So I want to say a couple of prefatory things before we actually follow the trace of this chapter together. The first is apologetic, and the second is visionary. Number one, although there can be little doubt that the Bible views the events described in this chapter as historical, one may at least ask the question whether Genesis 3 provides a chronicle of what took place, or at least in some measure, a symbol-laden description of what took place. Now, it is important to stress the history. Don't think for a moment that I'm stepping back from that. It is important to make sense, for example, of the Bible's genealogies, which stress people in recorded history all the way back to Adam and Eve. It is especially important from the point of view of making any sense of Jesus. Thus, for instance, in 1 Corinthians 15, 20 and 21, For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. And the analogy breaks down if the initial man and his sin are mere mythology. Or again, Romans 5.18, consequently, just as the results of one trespass was condemnation for all flesh, so also the result of one act of righteousness was justification that brings life for all men. Nevertheless, as for the degree to which an account is symbol-laden, we may perhaps reflect on a moment, for a moment, on a parallel from 1 Samuel, uh, 2 Samuel. Do you recall the account of 2 Samuel 11 and uh, David's horrible sin in the matter of Bathsheba and Uriah? I need not summarize the account except to remind you that there is a a strong and powerful man, David, a weak but good, decent, and in this case, innocent man, Uriah, and then that which is coveted, namely Bathsheba. In the next chapter, 2 Samuel 12, The prophet comes into um, King David, and because he knows it is a little risky to challenge the king directly, he tells a parable. He tells a parable about a man who has uh, many, many sheep. He is a wealthy farmer. And he swipes the sole lamb of one poor dirt farmer who has but the one lamb, and sacrifices that lamb for his own tummy's sake. David, of course, is incensed. Who is the man? And you recall, Nathan the prophet says, you are the man, O okay. king. Now recall, in the history, there was a powerful and good, a powerful and, and in this case, wicked man, a good but weak, innocent man, and the thing coveted. Likewise, in the parable, there is a powerful person, the rich farmer, a weak, poor, in this case, innocent farmer, and the thing coveted. That's why the parable is so telling. And yet, of course, in the first account, it is the second item, namely the weak man who gets killed. In the, the parallel account, it is the third item, namely the sheep that gets killed. The, the parable is not exact from a mere chronicle point of view, but nevertheless, it does the trick very well in exposing David's sin, does it not? That's the account, that's the difference between a parabolic account of something and, uh, and a mere chronicle. So we are not to ask ourselves, endlessly, exactly what is this tree of the knowledge of good and evil? The short answer is, I don't know. In fact, I don't even much care. But what it is doing in the passage is extremely important. We'll come to that in due course. Similarly, I do not know what kind of communication arrangements there were between serpents and human beings before the fall. That they could communicate, however, in some fashion, is clear. So let us not be too hasty with um, uh, problems of symbolism. We shall see that there is plenty of symbol-laden material in this chapter, um, and the underlying account has to be historical to make sense of the entire scripture. Which brings me to my second preliminary point. We must at least anticipate the importance of this passage within the entire canon. I cannot stress this point enough. In exactly the same way that it is impossible to understand the whole rest of the Bible without creation, it's impossible to understand the whole rest of the Bible without the fall. From the perspective of creation, if we do not have the creation account, then perhaps we are nothing but creatures that have arisen from the primordial ooze without transcendent significance. Mere accidental concatenations of atoms. Or perhaps then God, if he, she, or it exists, really is indifferentiable from the rest of the created order, and I'm merely part of God. You you see, the opening chapters lay out a whole worldview, a frame of reference in which God is personal and transcendent and separate from the universe. He speaks and he creates something and it is all good. The nature of evil is not some dualistic principle, but rebellion against the God who has made us. Now, the reason why this is so important is because unless we agree on what the problem is, we certainly cannot agree on what the solution is. If the primary problem of the human being is self-alienation or the like, then we need psychotherapists. If our primary problem is economical, then we need economists and government agencies. If our primary problem is social, then we need a lot of social tinkering. But if our primary problem is not only rebellion, but actual guilt before the God who made us, then God help us, we must be reconciled to God. And that will effectively shape how we present the gospel, how we think about the gospel. We cannot make sense of the rest of the Bible's storyline unless we get this chapter straight. It will be useful then to divide the text into four points. Number one, the deceitful repulsiveness that characterized the first temptation. The deceitful repulsiveness that characterized the first temptation. Chapter three, verses one to six. Here we are first introduced to the serpent. As I have already said, exactly what the communication arrangements were in Eden, we cannot possibly know. What we do know, however, is that in later scripture, Satan himself stands behind the serpent. That point is made explicit, for instance, in Revelation 12. Moreover, his smooth talk is in line with the description of apostolic provenance. He goes about as an angel of light, deceiving, if it were possible, the very elect. Then the second thing to observe about this serpent is that he was made by God. The first verse insists on that point. This is not accidental. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. What this does is rule out dualism. It is not as if there is an absolute principle of good and another absolute principle of evil. Even this Serpent, for all that he is evil, is nevertheless a created being. We are left, finally, with a monotheistic worldview rather than a dualistic worldview. And that has enormous implications for how we think about sin and evil and temptation and from where we derive our comfort, too. It has something to say, for those of you who are uh, interested in this sort of debate today, about the rising view of the open God. Have you stumbled across this particular heresy? Well, if not, then don't worry about it. I'll pass on to something more important to you. Uh, It it is coming. It is coming in a big way within evangelicalism, I fear, uh, but I shall pass on at this point if it is not of uh, trouble at this juncture. The NIV says that the serpent was more crafty than any of the creatures. The Hebrew can be either positive or negative. It can mean subtle, shrewd, crafty. It can mean prudent. Thus, for example, Proverbs 12, 23, a prudent man keeps his knowledge to himself, or the prudent are crowned with knowledge. But here, quite clearly, this um, subtlety has veered off into a crafty deceptiveness. Note, too, that this first temptation was by a subordinate. It was not as if Eve was pressured into something from someone above her, but was tricked into something from someone below her. Now that will become important in due course. Tuck it away. Satan then begins with a question. Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Note that he does not here begin with a contradiction. It merely entertains a possibility. It... um, expresses just the right amount of skepticism. There is a slightly incredulous, so did God really say such and such? At a certain level, this is flattering, for it smuggles in the assumption without actually saying so that God's word is subject to our evaluation. And then... It is followed up by exaggeration. Did God really say that you shall not eat of any tree? Notice then what this temptation does. It raises questions about God's word and our ability to assess it. It then exaggerates what God says and focuses on the negative without permitting attention to be drawn to the spectacular blessings and plenty that were theirs. This is not objective in any sense. It does not ask the question, well, in the light of the excellent world in which the Lord has placed you, the, the plenty, the goodness, uh, and, and a wife, and a husband pair, so that you would not be lonely, and uh, an absence of death, and... Uh, uh, a relationship with the Almighty, your maker, so that you walk with him in the cool of the day and enjoy an intimacy with uh, the transcendent God. In the light of all of that, can you can you really doubt his goodness and wisdom in making this one prohibition? Now, you see, if that had been the question, you would have had to have been an international class twit to fall, <laughs> do you see? But that that is th- the very nature of of deceitful sin. It couches things in a certain way so that evil is suddenly made to look good. And unless you analyze where it is coming from, you may not even see how deceptive it is. The woman then said to the serpent, we may eat from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. Now at one level, she responds faithfully by correcting Satan. We may eat from the trees of the garden. He said you may not eat from any tree. And she says, oh, yes, we may. We may eat from all of them except one. But then so far as the record goes, she does exaggerate somewhat the prohibition. You must not eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, God has told us, and you must not touch it, which so far as the text goes, the text does not say. But the real problem is not with the picky points. The problem is that she's lost already by entering into debate at that level. If she's going to respond, she should respond at a quite different level Such as, how dare you raise questions about the sheer goodness and glory of God? God is God. And look what he has given us of all that is free and bountiful and rich and good. We were created a few hours ago or a few days ago or whatever it was. Are we the fount of all wisdom? Are we to make final judgments about what we ought to do? We were made by him and for him. How dare you insinuate something evil of our maker? But instead of replying with the big picture that leaves God at the center, she replies at the picky level that makes God out to be a bit arbitrary. And now Satan, in verses 4 and 5, introduces flat-out contradiction. You shall not surely die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Satan then now, for the first time, introduces a flat-out contradiction of what God said, and the first doctrine to be denied is the doctrine of judgment. Could it be anything else? Yeah. For you see, the threat with the sanction was the day you eat this, you die. So to make the temptation more appealing, what you must deny is precisely the sanction. And it is our postmodern pluralistic generation now that has comprehensively obliterated divine sanctions. For then, you see, a choice, your own vision of good and evil, your own vision of reality, your own choice of God's is wide open to you if there is no winner, no loser in this matter. But implicitly, of course, it is not merely a denial of judgment. Implicitly, it is also an affront to God's holiness. Now, some say that Adam and Eve were not yet really moral beings, or not yet capable of discerning good and evil at all. This is clearly mistaken. Already in Genesis chapter two, verse 17, God had said, you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die, which presupposes human ability to obey, to understand the sanctions, and to choose. Within the framework of God's sovereignty, these are moral creatures. But they were unfollowed. In many ways, they were naive, that is, gloriously naive. They had not experienced sin. Their knowledge of good was from the framework of the world in which God had placed them and the goodness of God displayed to them. They were, to use the language of Genesis chapter 2, naked and unashamed. The point, you see, is not mere nudity, although undoubtedly there's that as well. It is far deeper. How many of you men would like your wives to know every single thing you have thought about them? Or their family? Or other women? How many of you wives would like your husbands to know everything you've thought about them? Every moment of bitterness. Every nurtured resentment. Every dismissive puff of arrogance. But originally there was no sin. None. They were naked and unashamed. There was spectacular cleanness. Integrity and openness beyond our imaginings. A certain glorious naivete. No memory of any previous sin. But here is the serpent's big ploy. The total temptation, the heart of its vicious deceitfulness is that what the serpent promised them, that is, that they would become like God, was in fact partly true and totally false. The truth is that in one sense, by succumbing to this temptation, human beings were opening up to a deeper level of moral consciousness at one sense. In fact, God himself agrees with that assessment. Chapter 3, verse 22. The Lord God said after the fall, the man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now, we shall see that there are connections of uh, similarity and dissimilarities in due course, but at a certain level, they now know more about good and evil than they could have known before. They have participated in it. Yet, at another level, the temptation was all viciousness, viciousness. It was all lie. It was such a terribly huge lie that it transformed not only their perception of reality, but all of reality itself. To be as God and to achieve it as it were by defying him or outwitting him is an intoxicating inducement. God will henceforth be regarded consciously or unconsciously as a rival. As an enemy deification is a fantasy difficult in fact to repress we may not be so crass as to say I really would like to be God but have there not been many instances in our lives in our homes or at work or in our relationships with other people where we really want to control the whole show when we have no right to control the whole show. Here is where we need to think a little more about the nature of this tree. What is this fruit on the tree, the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil? Number one, it's not an apple. (laughs) As if pears and pineapples were okay, but apples are a no-no which would mean that God was merely arbitrary and whimsical. Number two, it's not sex. Although in the history of the Christian church, many people have argued that this temptation is a temptation to sex. Well, considering that God made the woman for the man, after the man discovered that there was no creature in the created order that was suitable for him, that is not far off being a ridiculous interpretation. Moreover, Hebrew says that the the, the marriage bed is undefiled. It, it It is a good gift from God. No. The heart of the matter was this. It was bound up, whatever the reality of the tree, with a move into experience that would illuminate good and evil from within. You see, God has a knowledge of good and evil, but not from within. He has the knowledge of good and evil bound up with his omniscience. He knows not only what has been and what is and what will be, but even what philosophers call middle knowledge. All things that might have been under different circumstances. He knows it all. And in that sense, his knowledge of good and evil is perfect and exhaustive. Now, these human beings made in his image know good. They do not know evil. But when they come to know evil, they do not come to know it as God knows it, but experientially, from within. And the knowledge means their death. It means their corruption, their loss. You see, we need to see that this temptation was not merely an invitation to break a rule, arbitrary or otherwise. That is what many people think sin is. Sin in our culture is increasingly a snicker word. <laughs> she sin. <laughs> It's just something you snicker about. But even where it has some trace of odium, it is odium because of breaking a severe rule. But it is more than that here. We need to see that this sin is a revolution against God, against the Maker, the glorious Maker whose world Adam and Eve were enjoying, whose presence they delighted in. The tree is not magical. Rather, this is not only doing something prohibited it it is it is doing something prohibited as if it were good and what is lost is discipleship it is an effort to be self-made to 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 rest one's own knowledge from our experience rather than from god in the beginning there was god and his image bearers. then woke up in the morning and thought of him in idle moments, their mind would return to his glory. They were in perfect relationship with each other because each was perfectly related to him. But now each one wants to be as God. Each one wants to be the center of the universe. Oh, not literally, but, but metaphorically, that is the very nature of sin. Have you ever had a knock-down, out argument with your spouse or an employer, an employee A really nasty argument and you've gone away afterwards and you've thought about all the things you could have said all the things you should have said all the things you would have said if you had thought them fast enough and as you replay the argument in your mind who wins I've lost many debates. I've never lost a rerun. <laughs> and the reason, of course, is because, like you, I, I want to be the center of the universe. That's the very nature of sin. But once all of these finite beings want to be the center of the universe, then implicitly the real center of the universe is being denied. He must be suppressed. He must be redefined. He must be domesticated. And not only these vertical relationships change, but all the horizontal ones do too. Now I must control, I must manipulate. Do you see? That is the nature of the temptation. That is the nature of the sin. Although the phrase, thus, knowledge of good and evil in Hebrew as a phrase can occur in many places in the Old Testament, simply referring to moral or aesthetic discourse or the like, here it refers to an experiential engagement with good and evil that is finally utterly corrosive because we have experienced evil from within. Verse 6 still illumines this first point of the sheer repulsiveness, the deceitful repulsiveness that characterizes the first temptation. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food, that is physically appealing, Pleasant to the eye, that is aesthetically pleasing, and desirable for gaining wisdom, that is mentally transforming. She takes it, and here there is the beginning of a pattern of sin that writes through, that, that runs throughout the entire Scripture. Here now is a human being who listens to a cre- created thing rather than to the Creator. She follows her impressions good for food, pleasing to the eye, desirable for gaining wisdom. She follows her impressions, not her instructions. Moreover, she makes self-fulfillment her goal, not God her goal. The prospect of material, aesthetic, and mental enrichment seems to add up to her, to life itself. That brings her on a par with God. Here is the heart of covetousness, wanting something forbidden i need it to make me happy to make me like god even her judgment that this was good when she saw that the tree was good for food is in some ways a usurping of the place of god the first chapter records that god creates things and says it was good it was good It was good. He comes to the end of his work, and behold, it is all very good. What right does this woman have to decide what's good? So she took it and ate. Someone has written so simply act, so hard it's undoing god will taste poverty and death before take and eat become verbs of salvation and eve gave the fruit to adam and he ate presumably the same sorts of arguments here then is the first point the deceitful repulsiveness that characterized that first temptation second the initial consequences that erupted from the first temptation, the initial consequences that erupted from the first temptation, and with it, of course, the disobedience, verses 7 to 13. Even at the most superficial level, we see right away that there is a massive inversion. This is not merely a picky sin. There is a massive inversion. God made Eve to be a helper for Adam, and she helps him into sin. Now, this does not excuse Adam in the slightest. Do not misunderstand. It is to say that in this sin, all of God's good structure is being overturned. The man and his wife were made to be vice regents with God in this created order. Instead, they listen to a creature from the created order and pursue an, an item in the created order in order to discount and marginalize the creator. There is a massive inversion to the whole. The woman listens to the animal, not God. The man listens to his wife, not God. Everything is reversed. In fact, the point is made clear by God himself in the curse pronouncements. Because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, and so forth. And ironically, Adam is led now instead of leading, which is an astonishing way to think of becoming like God. The whole thing is steeped in irony the man and the woman have been sold a false idea of evil as something that is beyond good they are presented with a false view of wisdom as sophistication now they are presented with greatness but it's really under the guise of greed everything is inverted and so they die in one sense of course Adam and Eve did die. The best comment on this perhaps is from Saint Augustine in City of God, book 13 in the 4th century. If it be asked what death God threatened man with, whether bodily or spiritual or that second death, we answer, it was all. He comprehends therein not only the first part of the first death, Wheresoever the soul loses God, nor the latter only, wherein the soul leaves the body, but also the second death, which is the last of deaths, eternal and following after all. But note the results immediately emphasized by the text. Number one, their eyes were opened, verse seven. At one level, thus, the serpent had kept his promise. He promised that they would understand good and evil in a deeper way, and they did. They had now a deeper knowledge of good and evil, but it was an experiential knowledge and thus not like God's knowledge. That was the big lie. You see, it was partly true and totally false. Thus, The human being's new consciousness of good and evil was both like and unlike God's knowledge. It differs from God's knowledge the way an ill person's knowledge of his or her aching body differs from the physician's knowledge. They both have knowledge, but one from the inside of the disease and the other from the analytic perspective of the expert. Thus, the promised insight is massive and grotesque anticlimax. Human beings want enlightenment at all cost and lose God's light and walk in darkness. Their eyes are opened, and now they're blind. And within this framework, in the second place, they know that they are naked, and they sew fig leaves together for a covering, verse 7. You see, it's not just physical nakedness that is at stake, just as the naked and unashamed in chapter two is is not dealing merely with physical nakedness. Now for the first time, they walk in shame. Now they start having things to hide from each other, from God. The inevitable fruit of sin is shame. And so they sow fig leaves on themselves. At one level, this is pretty pathetic. Though, in one sense, the instinct is sound. And God confirms it in verse 21 when he provides covering for them with the skins of animals. Do you see? This is a way of saying, in part, that there is no road back to Eden. Unlike the nudists, who think that they can work things out by being nude and get rid of their inhibitions, or more importantly for us, unlike the spiritual nudists, who think that they will somehow advance and go back to Eden if they let it all hang out. God covers them up. You see, in the church there are sometimes sins that have to be exposed to public view. For example, in 1 Timothy 5, we're told not to entertain accusations against elders lightly. But where an elder is caught in a flagrant sin, then he's to be made an example of, we're told. Some things have to be exposed. And there are some grievances, some bitternesses in a local church that are are so deep and so grotesque, they, they, they have to be taken out and looked at. There are some things where Matthew 18 applies exactly. Tell it to the church. But there are also many, many, many things that are covered by other texts. Love forbears, love covers over a multitude of sins, you don't let it all hang out. There's a massive place, despite the siren calls of our culture, for self-restraint. There is no way back through Eden. Wear your fig leaves. There's no way back. There's only a way forward. We'll come to that, but there's no way back. And then in the third place, there's broken fellowship, verses 8 to 10. This is almost amusing, if you can say that there's anything amusing about sin. God calls, not because God doesn't know, but because this human being has always been in a relationship with God where there is speech and address and talk. And so he says, where are you? I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. They hear the sound, not the voice, anymore, and their only impulse is to run from God. So it will be on the last day. Do we not read in Revelation chapter 6 that when God comes in his glory, when the Son comes in his majesty, then both the rulers of the earth and the poor of the land who do not know him will call for the rocks and the mountains to hide them from the wrath of the land. But God pursues them. They cannot possibly find him nor do they want to. So already there is grace. He pursues them. He might have simply destroyed them. But he pursues them with his voice. Only a voice penetrates their concealment. God's question then in verse 9 is not so much soliciting information as exposing the futility and stupidity of trying to hide from Almighty God. Adam's answer in verse 10 conceals the cause behind the symptoms. He does not say, I rebelled. He says, I I heard you in the garden and I was afraid. Why was I afraid? Well, because I was naked. He still hasn't said, I sinned. He only deals with the level of symptoms, but God won't allow him to get away with it. For there is broken fellowship now with God, and he keeps pursuing him, pursuing him. And then there's broken fellowship with other human beings, verses 11 to 13. Here is the first instance of passing the buck to your wife. Not the last, (laughs) but the first. The woman you put here with me there's even a tinge of blaming God for it if you'd given me a better class of woman yeah. <laughs> but let me tell you frankly that has led not more than a, no, many more than a few men into sin it's my wife's fault and maybe God's for giving me that kind of a woman if I'd had a better one I would have been all right don't kid yourself Men who succumb to adultery start off in their minds by denigrating their wives and implicitly God. But she's no better. She's got to blame Satan or the serpent. It's not her fault either. The serpent deceived me and I ate. Notice, she's the victim. The first thing you do when you manufacture excuses is paint a victim picture. Nobody's responsible for anything. We're all victims. (laughs) These are the initial consequences that erupt from this temptation. Third, the explicit curse that was pronounced because of this temptation and the sin that came from it. Verses 14 to 19. It is important to state here that God remains sovereign in the move from chapter 2 to chapter 3. It is not as if God is sovereign in chapter 2 and then somehow loses a wee tad of his sovereignty in chapter 3. His sovereignty is undiminished. Genesis 2 and Genesis 3, as one person has said, simply set sovereignty in a different context. They do not threaten it. Now God Displays himself not only as creator, but as judge. There are three elements in this curse. First, the curse upon the serpent. Verses 14 and 15. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. Some have inferred from this that at one point serpents were reptiles with legs, and that the entailment for them of the curse was that they were somehow transformed. I won't rule that out. The vision of the new heaven and the new earth, finally, is of uh, wolves lying down with lambs and the like, a lion eating straw like an ox. Somehow, in the new heaven and the new earth, there is going to be enough of a transformation that the law of the jungle will no longer apply. But it may not be that here. It may be. I don't know. It is one of those things that one cannot finally say. Just as, for example, when God imposes circumcision, it is not that circumcision was then being invented for the first time. It was already well known in the ancient Near East. But it is now associated in the covenant with Abraham with a certain covenantal promise. And it may be now that the very nature of this creature is symbol-laden. I do not know. What I do know is that in the final vision of ultimate new heaven, new earth glory, there is a transformation here that contrasts with what we now see. The wolf and the lamb will feed together and the lion will eat straw like the ox, but dust will be the serpent's food. Which is not really a way of saying what he eats. It's not that serpents eat dust. It means that they're assigned to the lowest damned order. That's what it means. But there is a positive element even here. Verse 15 is sometimes called the protefangelium, the early announcement of the gospel, the first glimmer of the gospel. Already in chapter three, so great is God's grace. We cannot get out of the chapter on the fall without glimpsing the first insight into God's solution. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. The word offspring or seed has both a singular component and a plural component. It is important to see both. Thus the plural component crops up, for instance, in Romans chapter 16, verse 20. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. For all of us in the plural are the seed of the woman and in that sense you see the people of God will crush Satan under our feet not because we are so strong but but because of the apocalyptic vision of Revelation 12 we overcome Satan by the blood of the lamb by the word of our testimony that doesn't mean you give your testimony a lot but that you bear testimony to the gospel a lot and by not caring about your life even to the point of death. And thereby we crush Satan under our feet, until the final crushing is done by the seed in the singular sense. That seed, Christ himself, the seed of the woman, the ultimate offspring, who crushed Satan decisively at the cross, defeated him in principle, and will one day cast him into the lake of second death. liberals see no gospel here merely they see what they call an etiological myth that is a just so story you know a just so story how the serpent lost its legs this is a just so story to explain hostility between people and snakes an etiological myth I do not think that you can read anything of the pages of the New Testament and come out with so light a conclusion. When I was a boy, I, uh, I had one of those silly minds that ingested endless yards of poetry. And some of them were serious poems, for which I'm grateful, and some of them were not much more than uh, gibberish, but amusing gibberish. One of them asks uh, where the devil is. The devil surely has been abolished in our modern contemporary society, but this poem then goes through all the sins and evil and structures of of, of malice and and, and ugliness in this world, and then ends up with a couplet, yes, we voted the devil out, and the devil's dead and gone, but sober folks would like to know who carries the business on. About a year and a half ago, I was speaking at an evangelistic mission at Cambridge University in Britain. And nowadays, I've long since discovered that the average undergraduate who's not a believer, whether in America or in Britain, doesn't know anything about the Bible. They don't know the Bible has two testaments. They've never heard of King David. They've never heard of Abraham. If they've heard of Moses, they confuse him with Charlton Heston. Even their limited religious vocabulary, in every case, means something different from what I mean. Faith, spirit, God, whatever, in every case, they mean something different. So inevitably, those of us who do evangelism in these sorts of circles today are engaged in what is increasingly called worldview evangelism. That is to say, you have to get across a big picture. Uh, You are with Paul in Acts 17 in Athens to pagans who are biblically illiterate, not with Paul in Acts 13 in a synagogue to Bible believers who know the Bible storyline. And so part of evangelism becomes this bigger picture, do you see? And somewhere along the line, I was uh, preaching along these uh, these uh, these lines and uh, uh, addressing in, in particular questions of postmodernism. And afterwards, in one of the talkback sections, a young man came up to me and said, I, I think I'm beginning to see what you say, but but why should I abandon my world view for your world view I said well really for only two reasons one because mine is right and the other is because yours is wrong (laughs) which wasn't a very profound reply but at least it got his attention and he said, no, seriously. And I said, well, I don't know much about your worldview now. I, I, said, I said, tell me what you believe. He says, well, I'm, I'm a typical postmodernist. I, I think that all human knowledge is constructed out of our social makeup. Um, knowledge and language are social constructs and have no ultimately referent, uh, ultimate reference to reality. Um, thus, my worldview, as far as I can see, is as good as your worldview. And so I said to him, well, what does your worldview make of evil? How do you understand evil in your worldview? I have asked that question to literally hundreds of university students in the last 15 or 20 years, and the answers can be exceedingly diverse. But this young man was honest. He said, to be frank, he said, I don't know quite what to do with evil. He said, I don't even like to think about it. He says, I think I've got a pretty sophisticated grasp of postmodernism, but I don't really know how to handle the problem of evil within it. And I said to him, in this bloody 20th century, where we've had genocide after genocide after genocide, not just the Holocaust, but Cambodia and Rwanda, Pol Pot on the one hand and Stalin on the other, Mao tse over there, where where we kill millions of babies a year, where where evil is paraded on the front page of our newspapers all the time, you have no category for explaining it? (laughs) Do you see? Simple folks would like to know who's carrying the business on. There is something profoundly wrong, something profoundly evil, with a worldview that doesn't explain evil. But we look to one, a seed of the woman who crushes Satan under his feet. Then, of course, there's a curse on the woman, verse 16. To the woman, he said, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. With pain you will give birth to children. You see, the first designated function in chapter 1, verse 28, was to be fruitful and multiply. And now even that most basic function is accompanied by the, 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 the painful effects of sin. And then we read, your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. You may know that those two lines have generated endless debate as to their meaning. Many, many debates. If I understand them correctly, you get a picture of what is meant in the next chapter, where you have a similar Hebrew construction that is really quite rare. It's found here, it's found there. Look in chapter 4 in the matter of Cain and Abel. When Cain is caught out, we're told that God confronts him. Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. One of the entailments of the fall, then, is that the woman will desire her husband in the sense that she will want to control him, the way Sin wants to control Cain. But he, for his part, will be the quintessential bully. He will domineer her. Damned both ways. Do you see? Originally the man the man would love his wife and she would see herself as a helper suitable for him. Now she wants to control, and who wants to dominate. No wonder then that under the gospel, the apostle insists she must submit to her, to her husband. And he also insists the husband is to love his wife as Christ loved the church, which means self-sacrificially and for her good. Thus, what we find now are long-term social maladjustments, dysfunctional families, if you like. Endless power plays. The long-term effect of the sin that brought down the curse of God. And finally, the man. Verses 17 to 19. Because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you. Quite clearly a contrast. You must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you. And you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. Here then the entire universe is implicated in the curse. Human beings were set up as vice regents with God. And now that over which they were to rule is smashing back in cruel hardship, a disordered world. This answers then the fantasy, you shall be like God. It finally leads to the cry of Ecclesiastes, all things are full of weariness, vanity of vanities, a chasing after the wind. And finally, the long-term effects that flow from this first temptation, verses 20 to 24. Verse 20 is striking. It almost breaks up the flow of the narrative until you stop to think about it a little bit. Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. One is very tempted to think that here is the first sign of faith. What had God said? From the seed of the woman would come the ultimate release. And he names her Eve, the mother of all living. As he has named the other creatures, so as he toils in the field, faces the gnawing pains of thorns, he names his wife Eve. For his whole hope is in the promise of God from the seed of the woman. Then in verse 21, there is an improvement on the fig leaves. Some argue that it is unduly subtle, one is written, and a distraction to foresee the atonement here. God is settling immediate rather than ultimate needs, for both are his concerns. I think that that is right in its conclusion, and wrong in its preamble. That is to say, God is now insisting that there is no way back. They are naked, they are ashamed, they must cover up, and God provides a long-term cover. But it is almost impossible, in the light of where Genesis goes, let alone in the light of where the Pentateuch goes, or the whole Bible goes, not to see here a presentiment, an early presentiment, an early foreshadowing of a covering up because of death, a covering up because of sacrifice, a covering up because of a slaughtered lamb. And then in verses 22 to 24, there is expulsion by decree, a return to the dust, chased out by the flame of God. The cherubim in the scriptures turn out to be those angels whose every focus is either the praise of God or the preservation of the transcendent holiness of God. Yet it is important not to end quite there. It is important to see that this account feeds into two streams in the Bible storyline. The one is all dark. The other brings light. This, this fallen order, it, it will be a long time before the Apostle Paul expounds all the theological and anthropological human consequences of sin. But in the Bible's storyline, you start to see them pretty quickly. Think it through. As the race multiplies like rabbits, In the next generation fratricide murder the whole race descending until it's all but obliterated in judgment of the flood and after the flood Noah gets drunk the round again one quickly gets the impression that the only thing that stops God from wiping out the race again because of the fallenness that has dragged us all down, we have this bench towards sin all the time, is that God in his mercy has given this covenantal promise to Noah that never again would he wipe us out in that fashion. And then in his mercy, God calls forth a man who will be the progenitor of a whole new tribe from whom the Messiah will come. But when you look at the patriarchs, they're not such a wonderful bunch. <laughs> by the time you get to the third generation, talk about a dysfunctional family. One man sleeping with his uh, stepdaughter, another man sleeping with one of his father's wives, uh, the, the brothers selling another brother into slavery. And that was only because they didn't murder him. Then eventually God rescues them from slavery. Are they pleased by the promise? The first whiff of opposition, they're convinced that God is some manipulator. They were better off with a a slavery. And then with a mighty hand, God brings them across the Red Sea. He appears to them in Moses and thunder and lightning and glorious splendor. So they erect a golden calf. They come to the promised land and, and they're about to enter in. But 10 out of the 12 tribes provide a negative report and they're frightened of the sons of Anak after crossing the Red Sea. So that generation dies off in the wilderness. Kadesh Barnea now becomes a synonym for for the days of provocation, to use the language of Psalm 95. Then they enter the Promised Land. Then read the spiral downhill with endless idolatry cycles when God intervenes and intervenes and intervenes by sending another prophet, another prophetess, another judge. The downward spiral again until you get to the end of the book of Judges and you can scarcely read those chapters in polite company. And again the repeated refrain in those days there was no king in Israel every man did that which was right in his own eyes God how we need a king but they want a king for the wrong reasons and you know what happens to him and then when God calls for a man after his own heart a man who really is passionate about God nevertheless on the side he manages adultery and murder If this is a man after God's own heart, I'd hate to see what a man without God's own heart looks like. (laughs) And then there is the cycle of the downward decline of the Davidic dynasty until we get to exile. Then we return from the exile, a piddling 42,000 or so. And they have to be cajoled and berated and prophesied too to build even a two-bit temple. Do you see... We cannot read the Old Testament wisely in the swoop of its storyline unless you see that it is anchored in the fall. This is the burden we bear because we are sinners by nature and by choice. The curse of God is upon us and we deserve it. It is of God's mercies that we are not consumed. We often read the story today and we say, well, God is a bit harsh with all those judgments, isn't he? But it is not for nothing that the Bible keeps saying God is slow to anger and plenteous in mercy for the big movements are that apart from God's dramatic intervention again and again and again we would be obliterated. But the other side of the story is that God does intervene. Until in due course there arose another man and you, Adam, The first Adam was tempted in the glory of Eden, the second in the desert. The first was tempted in lush plenty, the second after a 40-day fast. The first was tempted in company with his wife, the second all alone. The first fell to the seductions of Satan, the second obeyed God and wrought our redemption.